Hello everyone and welcome to the latest episode of the Unconventional Podcast. Now my guest today absolutely nails what this podcast is all about. Chesi Kennedy is a trainer of neurodiversity in the workplace, unlocking the full potential of apprentices by creating a culture of inclusion and celebration of neurodiversity. That is what this podcast was absolutely built for. I can't wait to start getting into conversation with you, Chesi. Please tell the listeners a bit about you, your story, and the motivation behind why you now do what you do. Such a big question. (laughs) I like to get people in hard. (laughs) My story, that's really funny. That's like, once upon a time, there was a Chesi. (laughs) (laughs) I could do that, can I? Um, sorry, it's how my brain works. I'll just go on random tangents. <laughs> Back to it. Okay, so yeah, I'm I'm Shezzy, got the first part right. That's me. Um oh, <laughs> I'm autistic and dyslexic, but I didn't know until I was 37. So I've gone throughout my whole adult life of just thinking I'm weird, I'm stupid, kind of holding all of those labels that you kindly get given at school um some of them were given to me by the teachers themselves which is very nice um i'm a parent of now four teenagers uh, three of whom are neurodiverse they have we have a real mixture so we've got autism adhd dyscalculia dyspraxia so like we're, we're collecting them all we're kind of we're good at top trumps um So I currently work as a neurodiverse trainer. So I do a lot of training of neurodiversity in the workplace for a wonderful uh, mental health and neurodiversity training company called Thrive, which I absolutely love. So I run the neurodiversity side of things. And that's kind of where I am. I've gone through, I've kind of gone through my career at pacing where my children are. So I used to do a lot of work in schools because I could really see that mainstream education has no kind of support. There's nothing in place to support neurodiverse children. So that's kind of where I started going through the education with my kids. And now my kids are into the workplace. So I've kind of naturally evolved into that space, although COVID was the catalyst for me to stop working in schools because schools were out of bounds for two years. So, yeah. Do you know what? And one of the biggest reasons I really wanted you on is because we started the podcast about 10 weeks ago. Um, and although I've had a couple of people on that have been, uh, I've had a, a, a someone that was dyslexic. Um, in fact, I've had a couple of dyslexic people. I've not actually had anyone on that's neurodiverse themselves. It may be that their children are or that they work in an environment where they've come into contact with people that are autistic or, or have ADHD. And I was so desperate to kind of evolve the podcast to make sure that we get genuine neurodiverse people on that have, that have got a real story to tell. And, and one of the fascinating things about you, and I found this out when we did our recent event together with um, Scott, was that you lived, I guess, almost half your life not knowing, not having that those answers to those questions and kind of just second guessing probably a lot of what you did. What made you decide at that stage in your life to go down the official route and kind of get those answers that you craved? 
Yeah. So the the first I got a diagnosis of dyslexia first. Um, and the reason for doing that was I'd got to a point in my career where I wanted to do a degree because I kind of could see that you can't really do anything else without a degree. Um, so I really wanted to do it, but I knew that I would need support. I just knew that I couldn't get through it. So I spoke to the university and they were like, well, we can only support you if you've got a diagnosis. So and this is where I'm very aware of my privilege and the fact that I was able to pay and go and get that assessment so which is not something that's not available to everybody but I did it and I'll never forget that day um I'm not very good with emotions I'm not I don't express a lot of emotion but I was sat in the I think she was psychologist yeah clinical psychologist reception and I just burst into tears and I'm not like silently crying I was sobbing and she came out and she was like whoa what's going on <laughs> and I just looked at her and I said this is the first test if I pass it I really am stupid I said <laughs> I just feel really vulnerable right now because you're either going to tell me there's a reason that I can't read and write or I am stupid and for me that was and I, I kind of still get that feeling now of just how vulnerable I was um yeah, and so I went through and did the assessment, which was really hard. And then at the end of it, she kind of came back in. She said, um, obviously, I need to look at all the data. She said, but I just I can tell you right now you are dyslexic. It's just a case of how that affects you. And, and she looked at me and she said, I don't know how you managed to get through the school system with this not being picked up. And it wow. was a real weight had lifted being off my shoulders. It was an amazing feeling. Yeah. Um, and then I got the report back and I read through it and right at the end there was this sentence and it said I did not feel the need to um, talk to Cheryl about an autism diagnosis today and I thought that's a bit odd why would you put that in my dyslexia report and again didn't think anything of it just kind of filed it away um, and then about two two or three years later my as my children were getting older they then became teenagers I noticed them so I already knew that they were autistic I noticed them doing things that I did as a teenager so I I, I still do it now I compartmentalize friendships and people I speak to uh, my kids were doing the same and if they had a friend who said I will call you at the weekend they can't do anything because they're waiting for their friend to call, even yeah. though they've now got mobiles, mm. whereas I would literally sit next to the old telephone on, on the telephone stool mm. and, and I would camp there. And I was just like, oh, that do you know what? That that so resonates with me because when I was young, I was very similar to that. Um, and I was even worse with like girlfriends when I was a teenager and, and we sort of maybe we first started getting mobile phones in, in maybe my late teens. And I just I, I couldn't function if I was expecting something to come through and, and it hadn't come through. Um, so that that absolutely resonates with me completely. Um, I, w I want to touch on something you said there about schools. And, and obviously that that person that you were speaking with had said to you, I don't actually know how you made it through school without a better understanding of of what was going on but you know you and I are, are, are similar ages ballpark obviously 
Um, and it's when we were young and we were kids, it, there were so many people struggling through school that, that went through day to day without that, without that diagnosis, without those answers, weren't there? Um, and so, you know, what was it like for you, you know, or, or, or was it a case of because you didn't know, you just thought that was normal? Yeah, I I kind of developed my own strategies. So when I was at secondary school, it was a little bit easier because you went to a different teacher for each subject. And I was very much, I was the Marmite kid at school. The teachers either liked me or they absolutely hated me. And it usually went both ways. Um, so I remember teachers would have different opinions about me. And apparently I was often discussed in the staff room. Um, because if I got on with a teacher, basically if I liked the subject, so my drama teacher and my art teacher thought I was fantastic and a very studious student who would get on. My maths teacher couldn't stand me. My science teacher just thought I was a pain. So what I would do, my English teacher, we didn't really get on with. I would find ways to get myself removed from the class before my peers realized that I couldn't actually do the work. Mm. So that wow. was that was my go-to. And I would try and get the teacher to say, leave the room, come back when you can behave. Because then my literal mind was just like, wow, I don't have to come back because I still can't behave. So I spent many a term sat with the coats and I actually liked being sat in the corridor covered in coats. Which is <laughs> just, just that's, like, that's weird. It, yeah. It's incredible because the, the thing that, that really stands out to me there is the amount of teachers that you say you didn't get on with. And that and again, back then, and I remember the days well, they it was probably because of a lack of awareness of what was going on with you, a lack of general knowledge of neurodiversity, if we're going back 20-odd years, 20-plus years, do you feel like through your work in the schools now that we've moved on from that period in terms of the awareness and the acceptability of, of neurodiversity in, in children? Um, there's definitely awareness, but there is still a massive, massive gap in the support. And the difference is now is more class teachers are kind of aware, but... They are beholden to behaviour um, policies that don't fit neurodiverse individuals or they generally don't have the time or the skill set to be able to really adapt things. Mm. And they are still very much one thing I noticed, still very much that mentality of. But if we do it for one child, we have to do it for all and that won't be fair. So. We can't allow this one child to have a fidget toy because they'll all want a fidget toy. And it's it doesn't wash with me because I'm like, hang on, we don't think twice about allowing the diabetic kid to have a biscuit. Why yeah. is that a problem? We're not dishing yeah. out biscuits to everyone. It's a teaching opportunity. So and that I think a part of the big problem is and the degree I did was a degree in special educational needs. But even doing that very degree, it still didn't cover neurodiversity. Wow. And it's just like, well, I've done a degree in this. Yeah. yeah, I could still become like a SEN teacher 
you don't need that degree to be a SEND teacher, but teachers don't have the training. So it's not really the teacher's fault. No. There is there is a problem somewhere. Yeah. My wife works in a school as a, as a learning support advisor to an autistic child. Um, and that she's now finished with that child because he's moved on to the next school because the juniors and um, infants are split where our children go. And her next assignment, if you like, is um, when she goes back in September, she's going to be in that same position, but with a year R uh, pupil, a young lad who's only going to be just four. So very, very young to be starting school anyway. And then when you throw autism in the mix as well, it's a, it's a whole other level. Um, she She would agree with you in the sense that in mainstream schools, there isn't the support, but it but she would also very much agree with you, but that it isn't the teacher's fault. It's a it's a a failure at the system level. Um, and I mean, what you've just said there around you've done a whole degree on this, and neurodiversity still wasn't included in that course. So, I guess from your standpoint, you've done that. I mean, I certainly haven't done that. Even at that level, we're still very outdated, aren't we? In our education. Did you know that the unconventional brand has three arms? The podcast you're listening to right now, Unconventional Apparel, where a percentage of the profits go to the National Autistic Society, and most recently, Think Unconventional, a social media company with busy business owners and CEOs in mind, putting your social media presence on the social media map. Absolutely. And it, and there's a lot of teachers leaving the profession mm. because they're stressed because and you get some teachers who can see that a child is neurodiverse, needs a different way of, of supporting them, but they they just can't. They don't have the resources there. So then they get disheartened and think, well, I'm going to leave the pr- profession, which is really, really sad. And I've worked in specialist schools as well and can completely see that for some children, Specialist education is not the right place for them because they need to still have that expectation of you can sit at a table and you can achieve this. Whereas I'm very much for if you can get the right support, it's good for children to learn around each other. And what what the most important thing is we need neurotypical children to see how successful different thinkers can be because they're the future. Yeah. They they're more likely to be the employees whether we like it or not of the future is more likely to be a neurotypical individual. Yeah. Yeah. We want them to be thinking back when they see an application form if someone has been brave enough to declare. We want them when they see ADHD to be like, "Oh, I remember Sally. I was at school with Sally, she had ADHD, but she was really good at this this and this. All she needed was something to fiddle with or to be able to walk around not oh I remember Sally she was always really rude and thrown out the class and do you think it's important that that education starts at that real young school level rather than almost excluding children at school level because they're disruptive and and they're getting and so that if we if we start it at school level by the time they all get to adulthood there's like you've just said there's a real knowledge base around 
the, the benefits of neurodiversity in the workplace. Do, do you think it's important to start it young? Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things um, my daughter said to me the other week, actually, it was really sad. We were watching a program and I think it might have been um, Love on the Spectrum, mm -hmm. which is such a beautiful Netflix show. And we were watching it. And she said to me, she said, I remember when I was at school being taken into a room and taught how to make friends with other children. Oh, wow. And they had to do different scenarios and things like that. She said, but why weren't the other children taught how to be friends with me? Mm -hmm. And I just thought, that's so right. We are always talking. We First thing when you're told as a parent, your child is autistic, you're told they will probably need support with their social skills. Oh, hello. Why aren't we teaching all the kids social skills? Yeah, yeah. It's it. It is a no-brainer. I mean, it's almost like, and it is that whole minority thing as well, isn't it? Neurodiversity is very much seen as the minority, and therefore doesn't get the care and attention that it it needs because the care and attention is given to the masses. Um, same scenario, world the world over, with different things that are classed as minority. But you're so right. If we don't change the system and the mindset around how we educate, we're going to be another 20 years ahead and still saying the same thing, still fighting the same fight and missing huge opportunities, especially when those neurodiverse children evolve into the workplace. So I guess from for, for me, it's then taking your journey from what it was like at school and how you navigated that into your first work experiences. Um, obviously, you've mentioned what you do now and, and how much you love it. And it, it sounds like you were kind of born really to do that role. But I imagine that when you first went into work, um, it probably wasn't quite the case. How, how did that go and, and what experiences did you have there? <laughs> yeah, so I have a typical autistic person. Me, I've job hopped quite a lot and done various things. Um, my very first job was um, as a dental nurse, which was really random how I fell into that. It was the old YTS schemes. Um, I think it was a youth training scheme or something like that. £35 a fortnight. <laughs> it's like 40 hours wow. work, slave labour. <laughs> um, but that came about because I dropped out of college because I just found it too hard. Couldn't do it. And my mum got the job advert and she held it up and there was one to be a florist or one to be a dental nurse and she was like choose you're doing one <laughs> and that's kind of where I can see now that was my autistic literalness didn't occur to me to say no I don't want to do either <laughs> I was like oh, all right then I'll pick that one yeah so I did yeah I did dental nursing which I hate absolutely hated um but for something to do I went and did dental science and learn all about that, which then enabled me to get a job in the hospitals. And I worked as an operating department practitioner, which I did really enjoy. Um, so if anyone's seen like Grey's Anatomy, it's working in the hospitals, in the operating theatres. Yet I did that for seven years and never once had sex in a cupboard. So I think it was either going on and I didn't see it or I missed out. So yeah. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> but I look back now and I think, that was such a big responsibility job to have. It was two years training and I loved it. But there were so many conversations that went on 
that I didn't have a clue what anyone was saying. And it wasn't because it was medical jargon. The conversations were too complex for me. Mm. And so I would just, um, what's that saying, like smile and wave. Like, yeah, great. Yeah. yeah, I understand. Like so, masking so much. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, life is so hard. Why is life so hard? And just, I couldn't remember things. I couldn't get things just right. And do you remember the Victoria Wood sketch? Is it on the trolley? She'd bring mm-hmm. out all the th- So there was one day we were in the operating theatre with this terrifying surgeon. And I was scrubbed at the table with him and he was asking for a particular instrument. And I just stood there and I went straight into Victoria Wood mode. And I was like, is it on the trolley? Can you see it? <laughs> Everybody else in the operating theatre were like, what are you doing? You can't speak like that to this senior surgeon. <laughs> but because I don't have any like hierarchy, everyone's yeah. the same. <laughs> I was just like, you can't have it if it's not on the trolley. <laughs> <laughs> that's not a bad impression actually <laughs> but yeah he, he was he was livid apparently but i didn't notice i was like oh well <laughs> what one do you want I, oh, do you know what as you talk and i know i know there's going to be lots of work stories to continue this conversation but as you talk about the the conversations that you were hearing and you couldn't process it i've it resonates with me so much and and you know I've said this on a couple of podcasts I haven't made it common knowledge but I've said it on a few podcasts where I recently did um an online assessment probably much like the start of your journey to finding out um yeah I I, I recently did an, a, an online assessment for ADHD and autism and autism was um it wasn't like crazy high but it was higher than than average. And obviously it is in the family because of my son, um, who gets it from somewhere. Um, but then uh, ADHD was like crazy high, like re- really crazy high. And when I hear stories of, of you saying things like there was conversations going on and I could just couldn't process it, and, and you start to think to yourself, am I just thick? Like, why can't I process the information the same way that all these people are seemingly processing this information? And it's very much like why I use a lot of visual communication in my social media content. Because if someone writes uh, a big block of content on social media, I just can't, I I can't deal. Like, I I just can't process it. Most of my stuff is visual um, because that's how I like to consume information. But I've spent years questioning um my own ability to to take on and retain information so that you talking about that is just it resonates with me so much so i guess from that role that you say you enjoyed but obviously sometimes you would you'd go into victoria wood mode or and, and not really understand what was going on what was next um so then i had kids and was like that's it wasn't the sort of thing that getting a phone call at two o'clock in the morning when you've just got the baby to sleep to be told, oh, we've got a kidney. Can you come in and help with the transplant? I was like, seriously, you having a laugh? Um, and childcare for two. And, and so it was just, it was easier for me to to give it up and stay at, stay at home with the kids. Um, and then I went on another tangent and realised that, hey, I'm gay. Woo! <laughs> So it's just like, <laughs> so soon, soon after I split up with, with my ex, I then went down another rabbit hole of life. 
and realised again that so it's been a single parent. There was no way I was going to get back into operating theatres. And so that kind of once your medical license has, has lapsed, then you have the kids. You realise quite early on in your parenting journey that your kids are different and you don't know why. Um, but even that was fascinating because I was an only child. So when my daughter started speaking at six months, I thought that was normal. Um, apparently it's a really visual sign of autism, but I didn't know that. Wow. Um, I was just like, oh, my child talks. She doesn't talk baby language. <laughs> yeah. She reads books and has full conversations at six months. <laughs> um, but then other things happened and it, it became really evident that I needed to be there to support my kids through whatever craziness they were going through. And, and those those first five years of not knowing what on earth was going on was just horrendous. It was a very, very dark time. And were you on your own for those five years? Like, from a timeline perspective, um, when did things break down with your with your marriage? And then was that quite early on in the in the in the children's lives? Um, yeah. So my elder daughter was five, and my son was four right. when uh, the marriage broke down. But my ex used to work all the time anyway, so I was at literally at home. And I w- I'm not the most maternal, I'd always admit it. It's just like, someone should write a book called mm. Do You Really Want To? Children, Are They Worth It? And just be <laughs> honest. And it's, <laughs> I think we need to have more honest conversations. Yeah. But again, it comes back to, if I had known I was autistic, I could probably have had a better relationship early on mm. with my kids because when they were screaming and crying, which babies do, mm. They were screaming and crying because they were sensory distressed. Mm. They would then make me scream and cry because they were causing me sensory overload. And it was just this vicious cycle Yeah. Um, that I didn't know what it was. You just think you're a bad person because you love your kids to bits. Absolutely. And I would mm. do anything for them. But it's just... I don't know. I'm probably quite controversial saying this. And I've said this then I love you to bits. But if I had another parallel universe, mm. I'd try without mm. just to see. But I wouldn't want anything to happen to the kids that I've got. No, no. And, and, and again, I completely resonate with that. You know, my wife jokes with me all the time and says, did, did you actually want children? Because like, we, you know, she for five years after my second son was born, uh, after Josh was born, she didn't work, <clears throat> and it's only in the last year that she's gone back to work and worked in the school because Josh has gone to school and she wanted to get back into work. Um, so she was present twenty four seven, and up until very recently, I was working in an office, with the exception of the COVID eighteen months when we were all at home. I was in an office five days a week, eight, nine, ten hours a day. So it was. It, she wasn't a single parent because I was working local and I was always home in the evenings. But much like yourself in those early years where your husband was away and, and, and working quite a lot. And, and obviously work, when, you, when you're when you in quite a, a high-powered job in terms of your position, it does consume you. You know, especially us fellas that can't really do more than one thing at once. Um, it absolutely consumes us. So she always jokes and says, but then on the flip side of that, very much like you... I love my my boys to bits. I wouldn't 
absolutely wouldn't be without them. I would die for my children. But I often sit there and think to myself, if I had my life again, would I, knowing what I know, would I be so eager to have children? I don't know because it it completely changes your life. Um, but then having said that, I think you generally always want what you don't have. Um, and when you're a parent for of quite challenging children, you crave peace and quiet. You crave a bit of alone time because you never get it. Um, if you had all of that, you'd probably get bored of it. So then you'd crave something else. So I just, I genuinely think in life that you crave what you don't have. And it's about balance, isn't it? Um, but no, I, I, that totally resonates. Just to be fair to the kids, when they were younger, having having four kids is tricky anyway. Having three autistic children. So at one point we had three under 10. Extremely hard. But now they are teenagers. I think we've got the easiest teenagers because they like their routine. They, they're not rude. You hear some real horrible stories of what teenagers can get up to. And they're all a year with it between each other. And you're, they're, they're actually a, a joy to be with. So I guess you can't have it always. It's like we've done the hard work. We, they all know what they need to self-regulate. And we're good. It's like people that prefer the baby part. I, all, I always knew that I would come into my element the older the boys got. And now that mine are six and nearly ten... And they like Lego and my youngest now likes football and going out on his bike and stuff like that. And movies, we have movie night on a Friday. As a dad, I feel like I've really come into my element as they've got older. But in the early years where they were baby baby, I I definitely struggled. I struggled as a dad. Um, But I, I kind of always knew that I would come into my element later in life. And again, I don't know if that was because of my own issues going on probably an element of it and also because jake we we understood or we found out about jake very young you know it then made us realize what he'd been going through from a sensory perspective for those first couple of years of his life and it it then answered those questions so i guess my next question really for you is i've always been an advocate of not judging people um, based on their label or lack of label. And what I mean by that is, as you said quite rightly early on in this podcast, you went and paid to, to privately to have those assessments and to get those answers. And as you quite rightly said, it's not cheap and it's not available to everyone. So there's a lot of people that need support and need more of an understanding than they get that won't ever get the, the label or the answers that, that you've had. However... I think the more I talk to people like yourself and the more I see how your lives have changed for the better since you've had those answers and since you've been able to kind of make sense of what's going on there, would you recommend that if people do have those those questions in their mind and they listen to people like you on podcasts like this, that they do go out and seek those answers if they in any way that they they can would you recommend that to people i think it's a very very personal thing and what's really important to remember is that self id 
identifying if you're comfortable with that is just as valid if you really feel no I connect this is me that answers the questions for me I'm good then that's okay as well and that when you look at like a legal standpoint you're still covered by the Equality Act which I find is fascinating and one of the big things we do at Thrive with our um, new diversity training is we are very conscious in our trainings. We deliver it from a point of view as let's have um, inclusion that is proactive, not reactive. And the idea being is we meet people where they're at. So if you start having conversations with the individual and it happens on my thread, sometimes I see it. You're always going to get that person who thinks we're all on the autistic spectrum or everybody experiences that everybody feels this and it's easy to get argumentative with them and bash your head against a wall and be like but not everyone experiences it every day or you can say Do you know what fair enough let's look at it a different way let's have every office as a norm has um text to speak software available we have a communication policy that states if you're sending an email you can't send a long email. You have to have it very clearly defined. Who is it for? What do you want? When do you want it done by? Very simple. Nothing else in between. And then that helps the person who struggles to process. But it also helps the stressed individual who maybe they've got so much work to do. They've not got time to read through 20 emails of chaff. Just get to the point we can support everybody. If meetings have got timed agendas and this is going to happen at this time, we're going to be finished by this time. The person who's worried that they need to go and pick up their cat from the vet. Can focus on the meeting because they know oh, the meeting's going to be finished by such and such. I'm going to be able to get to the vet. But we've also helped the really anxious person who needs to know how long this is going to go on for. Or the person with autism or the person with ADHD is thinking, how long have I got to stay in this room? That's inclusion. And, and do you predominantly at um, your company, do you predominantly go into schools or do you go across all types of businesses? So Thrive, we mainly work with businesses. We, we right. have done some work within schools, but sadly, there's no budgets. So no. I used to when I worked on my own before I partnered with Thrive. I would do a lot of work in schools and trying to get the teachers to see that when you get your lesson right for the same kids, it suits everybody. And that was a huge thing that I had. But I've got bills to pay. Mm. And what was really sad was just before COVID, um, a lot of the local schools to me started to have their budgets cut anyway. And I had one school phone me and they said, um, Shezzy, we can't have you in next term because you're a luxury we can no longer afford. Oh. And I was like, ouch. Mm. <laughs> okay, wow. I'm a luxury. But they've got some lovely murals painted through their school now. <laughs> mm. Do you know what? I think just listening to you talk about what all of the different ways that people in those companies are processing information, the way to just the the tips around email communication that you've given there around keeping things simple you know i i used to struggle with people in my in my last company that in the tech team um and you know i would have put 
knowing what I know about neurodiversity, I would have probably put two thirds of our tech team on the spectrum. Um, they'd never openly said that they were anything. And why that's their prerogative, even if they did know. Um, but just because of the way they communicated, some of their mannerisms, the way that they worked and the, the, the level of focus required, especially in the tech, tech team. Um, and I often struggled with some of the communication with them because it was so blunt and so direct. And But I very quickly learned that's just actually them being efficient. They've tuned into how they process information. They don't do fluff. They don't do all the waffle. They just want short, sharp, what you want, down, bush, end of. Um, and I think there's a lady that I, I do a bit of work with um, called Rachel Glasspole. And she has created a program for schools. And, it, uh, and it's designed to improve children's mental health. So not just neurodiverse children, all children. Um, because I think people underestimate the the damage that the last two years has done on our children's mental health um, because we just think as kids as made of rubber and they'll just bounce back but reality is they don't uh, and that carry they carry that and that stays with them right through to adulthood and then we know what happens when they don't release it at adulthood that some of the tragedies that we hear about um, and she's actually a fantastic woman probably for someone like yourself to to be connected with because she obviously needs those connections in schools. The worrying thing is, though, for businesses like hers, and I'm sure she'll overcome it because she's a very creative woman, is that lack of budget that you just talked about. How how do you even overcome that? I don't know. It is, it's just a heartbreaking thing, and it made me super stressed and very, very ill. Mm. In fact, just before the pandemic i actually lost my whole business to covid in the end which was a real shame um because i had so many parents who were like i need you i need you but it became there were a few parents who could afford to pay me now when i wasn't charging stupid amounts of money mm. but i have to pay my mortgage and and that's the thing and and i think a lot of people also in schools expected you to be a charity and work for free and as i like, but i can't work for free and it's not as simple as just set up a charity. Charities don't just get handed money because they've got the word charity in front of them. And I think no. we need to, as a society, I think we need to remove neurodiversity from people thinking, well, it's the medical form of disability and therefore everybody who's neurodiverse should work for free or anybody who's supporting anyone neurodiverse should work for free. Otherwise, you're taking advantage. Mm. And I think that's not okay. Do you think there's enough people right now in our in our world that if something that got created by someone like you or me or a group of people that it would be supported financially and what i mean by that is do you think there there is enough awareness around neurodiversity that things could be, if someone turned around and said right i'm going to set this up but it needs funding that some that there's enough people out there with the ability to fund something that would or do you think it's still such a such a closed off topic with a, a real lack of awareness around it that that just we're still fighting that fight at the moment does that make sense yeah well um 
Dan, oh gosh, I can't remember his surname. I'm such a bad person. Um, he's just set up <laughs> <laughs> neurodiversity in business, which loads of big corporates have signed up to. And I think he his idea with that, that's a charity, is the fact that more businesses will start to take ownership and create um, diversity inclusion policies mm. that include neurodiversity. Mm. So he's definitely doing that within the business sector. Mm. But schooling, I'm not sure. I personally think, and I could just, we could rant on a whole podcast separately about this. I think the school system needs to be taken down, scrapped mm. and rebuilt. Because when we look at the school education system, it was built for the industrial era. Mm. And it was all about churning people out so they could be clever enough to go and support in the factories and be the next lot of big industry. Mm. Well, we're now in the digital era. Mm. So we need to stop just testing kids for the sake of it and allow them to think. Kids kids don't get enough scope to be able to open their minds and really think. And I just think, how amazing would it be to have an education system where if a child is suddenly interested in gears, well, go and explore, go and learn however much you want. Mm. We're not going to be saying to you, yes, but can you tell us the subordinate clause and the relative clause and the conjunction in this? Like, what the heck is that? Mm. I've been through school and I don't know. <laughs> Have you ever read a sentence, Andy, and gone, oh, yes, that's a subordinate clause in there? I wouldn't even know what it means. Exactly. You just read it. Does it make sense? Yeah, no. Stick a comma, stick a full stop. Ask Grammarly. <laughs> Just like... <laughs> I, I, what, I guess what frustrates me, and like you said, we could rant for a whole hour on just this one topic. It, how, how, how is it that it's so obvious to us? Is it that because we live with neurodiversity that it's just opened our minds to a whole new way of thinking? I don't know. But how is it so obvious to us, but so kind of just unobvious to so many do do you feel like we need we almost need to ride out a generation of the people that are setting the tone in schools and and that makes me sound so ageist and i really don't mean to sound ageist but in my wife's school you know my wife's 39 in her school a large percentage of the teachers and support assistants and but are in their 50s and 60s. And some of them are extremely old school, like what you would call old school teaching. Is Do we almost need to let a generation ride out so that a younger generation filter in? Or do you think we've still got those same old school views in that younger generation because they are almost just feeding off an outdated system? Yeah. Oh, in fact, I'd say the younger is probably worse because at least with the older teachers, you've maybe got that little bit more impulsive, be willing to do something because there's not necessarily those ties of, well, does have we done the health and safety for Mm. that? Have we Mm. got a six week planning map of that? Can we show this, that and the other is just like, really? can't we just experience that but I think it's the way I think it's the way the system's set up from the top you've got Ofsted schools are so scared of Ofsted 
to the point that some schools will even limit the amount of SEND kids they have in their schools because it knocks their SATs results. Yeah. Which is just awful. It is. And, and I just think you can't do that, which is why, and I know we've had this conversation before about a lot of kids are just seen as a behavioural problem because I don't want to say that they're SEND. And that's not okay either. No, it really isn't okay. Um, I think as a as a kind of last topic and, and point to discuss, and it really ties in with what we've just been talking about, my, my worry is for all of the amazing work that people like yourself and others are doing in businesses that are capturing people once they get to adulthood and they're in the workplace. But we see, don't we, on a daily basis... The damage that is caused by not having that support from four up to 16 or 18 and through the, all of those, you know, I remember saying to my nephew, who's autistic, he's basically an older version of my son. He's 16 now, super intelligent academically, but socially he's, he's banging trouble. <laughs> Someone's going to knock him out one of these days because he just says things that, without you know what it's like no filter um but i remember saying to him after the first year of his secondary school which was absolute torture for him you know online bullying i mean he loved covid because he never had to go into school yeah best year um i remember saying to him school is just one of those things some people enjoy school some people look back on it and say it's the best years of their life. For you, you just got to get through it. Because when you come out of school, that's when you'll come into your own. When you're not surrounded by people that don't understand you. And he did. He spent five years just tolerating school. Um, but you've got to be pretty strong-willed for that not to then damage you in later life. And I think that, that for me, is the big reason why we have to start this process that start all the things that you're doing to support much younger because the education with children as we said right at the start of this podcast it's not just about teachers understanding it it's about the other pupils understanding why a child like Jake and like your children do the things they do and that they're not just stupid or idiots or naughty or disruptive there's actually a, a why behind that um and that's that's my big concern yeah and uh, but i think that's how there needs to be that shift but there also needs to be that acceptance and i found myself thinking earlier you know there seems there's not a pandemic of people getting diagnosed as neurodiverse but the more conversations that are happening more people are coming forward like yourself and be like oh I can see a bit of myself in there. Now, is it? I know the statistics, it's like 15% of the UK are neurodiverse. That's diagnosed. If you were to go around and assess absolutely everybody, would it be a case that more people are neurodiverse than not? They just don't know it. Yeah. So I just think that it's a time for a shift. We mm. all need to be decent human beings and just give people the benefit of the doubt. Absolutely. Shezzy, this has been uh, brilliant. I've loved it. I've loved every minute of it. It's been one of my favourites, if not my favourite, if not my favourite, because I think it's really touched, it's really uh, touched certain things in me that 
that I'd been thinking about for a long time. And I think it's been a real education piece for people that are not only on the spectrum already, but are potentially seeing things in themselves that potent- that they might then want to go and explore. Um, it's been great. Um, so thank you very much for uh, for giving up an hour of your day today to come and talk to us. Well, thank you for having me. It was nice not to be looking at emails for an hour of my day. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, we've both got to go back to that now, sadly. Um, I will uh, I will let you know when it is live. And um, thank you very, very much for, for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome. Have a great day. And you. Thanks, Jessie.